morning, Rocky Peak. Ready to see you. My name is Michael. If you weren't here at the top, we did some baby dedications, but a special welcome uh, to you. So we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now and just want to throw my two cents in. If you're, you're new here to Rocky Peak, the very best way to get involved is to, to join one of our small groups we call Life Groups. We actually have 115 groups that we meeting this fall of all different kinds. So like Kelly said, if you need some help afterwards on the patio, they would, uh, be, our, our team would love to help you find the right one. But we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so uh, if you haven't done so already, inside your program is that green to white message note sheet. It was every week. Uh, for our time, for those of you who are joining us online, up there on the top of the, uh, the, the page, whatever uh, format you're using, there's a kind of a, uh, a link there. You can click to message notes, download uh, whatever format you like the best. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay. So Father, we're here today in, in, in your house. Lord, we're here in your name. And as we said at the top, Lord, that we, we know that you're here. You said where two or three are gathered that you would be there. So we just acknowledge your presence, that you are in the room, that you're here. It's what you say that's most important. And so as we unpack your word, we pray that you just speak to each of us according to our need, that we take our next step in listening and following you into this new life you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, our story starts today early in the morning. And uh, he's up at the crack of dawn. It's a big day. It's a day of preparation. And he's looking forward to it. Uh, he has recently returned from a, a, long, a long trip away, very successful trip. Um, he's been back for a while now at this, this new kind of cosmopolitan city that he's, he, he looks at as his adoptive home. Um, but the time has come for his next major venture, and he's looking forward to the future, to the new cities that he'll be visiting, many for the first time, uh, to the new opportunities that this trip is going to afford. But on this day, um, there's also a cloud hanging over uh, the future and over this particular day. Because he knows that the time has come, he can't put it off any any longer, that he has to have this conversation with his, his close friend, his associate, they've traveled together in the past. Um, but this time it's not going to be possible. Um, that since they've been back home, that there's been an issue that has risen up that has sort of torn them apart. And though they're very close friends and they've worked together so well for years, though they've talked, they've discussed, they've argued, they've debated, they just can't seem to get on the same page. And the issue is just too big. It is too big to ignore It's too big to pretend away. And so on this day, he knows that the time has come. He can't put it off any longer. He's going to need to have a conversation. But this time, they they can't travel together. They're going to have to break up the band, so to speak. They're going to have to go their different ways. And as he thinks through that conversation that will take place later in the day, his heart's heavy for all that this means and all the implications. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in the last few months that's called Christ, uh, Culture, and the Cross. And for those of you who are brand new, I know every week we have new people uh, joining us. Last night we had a Next Step dessert. It was just fun to meet some of the new people God's bringing. Um, that, uh, for those of you who are new, this, this series is really an in-depth study 
of a letter from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to a group of Jesus followers that he and his team have actually led to Jesus about three years before. They live in a strategic Roman city, very important Roman city, in the southern tip of Greece. It's called Corinth. So we call this letter the letter of 1 Corinthians. And um, if you were here last week, we, we kicked off kind of the second stage of this series. We, we moved in the second section of this letter that starts at chapter 5 and goes through chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul begins to address many of the challenges, the problems, the things that are arising in this church, because, because after he left, uh, that they, they've kind of drifted and more and more are following, kind of going back to the vision and values of their culture, rather than the vision and values of Christ that are most revealed in his cross. And so today we're going we're to look at the second issue he's going to tackle in this section of the, of the letter, and it starts at chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn on there, to, there in your note sheet. There's a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross of the Conflict. And we're going to walk through the first 11 verses today. And so he, he says in verse 1, he says, if any of you has a dispute with another. So I want you to catch right away the topic of this passage is disputes or conflicts in the body of Christ. Now, specifically what's going on in Corinth, there, there's a case study that he's going to address that what, that's going to give him some, some latitude to give some principles of how we deal with conflict in the new community of Jesus. Specifically what's going on is there's one member of the church that has apparently ripped off another member, probably in a financial dealing of some sort, business dealing, and, uh, and as a result, uh, another member of the church is taking that member to court before the corrupt Roman courts. So they're not dealing it in-house in the church, they're taking it out. And Paul is shocked by this. And so he says, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people, you know, the new community of King Jesus? And so in the Greek, this is very strong. It's sort of like, how dare you? How, how dare you? You're, you're sons and daughters of the king. You've come to Jesus. You've been made one through his death and resurrection. You receive the, the gift of his Holy Spirit working among. How dare you take the, a conflict before kind of these secular, corrupt Roman courts to, to resolve it? This should be resolved within the community. And so he says, um, or do you not know and remember, I mentioned this last week, but there are 10 times in this letter where Paul will ask, do you not know? And it's his way of saying, you should know by now. You, you should know better. And so he says, do you not know that the Lord's people, the followers of Jesus, right, that they will judge the world? Now, this is fascinating because throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, we have a few allusions to this. Not a lot of in-depth teaching, but there are some allusions to this throughout the New Testament that one day when Jesus comes back, in some way, you and I, as followers of Jesus, are actually going to rule with him, and we're going to actually participate in, in judging the world, and even judging, as we'll see in a minute, judging angels. Now, this is amazing, and you kind of wish that the New Testament told us more about this. It really doesn't. But just an example there in your note sheet from Revelation chapter 5, there's this scene before the, the heavenly court where, where the heavenly court is praising uh, the Father and the Son. And, and they said, you have made them, talking about Christians, 
He says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will what? They'll reign on the earth. And so we have these allusions throughout the New Testament to us reigning, ruling, judging. Uh, Paul apparently had taught them more about this because he says, don't you know? He's assuming they did, but uh, he doesn't go into detail. But his point is very clear. He said, if this is who you are, if you're sons and daughters of the king, one day you're going to judge the world. Can't you handle this little matter that's happening in your church? Can't you figure this out? And so he goes on and he says, uh, and, if you, uh, and if you will judge the world, are you not competent to judge these trivial cases you know, of this life? He says, do you not know that we will judge whom? Angels. Again, that's what he's just talking about. How much more the things of this life? He says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Like, like how would you... How, how do you go before non-believers, corrupt Roman courts, and that we, we, we see them as part of the kingdom of darkness? They don't know the truth. They haven't yet been set free. And why would you go for them before a righteous ruling? That just makes no sense. And so he says, verse 5, I say this to shame you. Uh, no, it's like, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is crazy. He said, is it possible that there's nobody among you in your church that's wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? And there's some irony here because remember, they, they keep seeing themselves as so wise and so, 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 uh, so spiritual. And so Paul says like, hey, you think you're so wise. Isn't there just like, isn't there somebody in your church wise enough to kind of arbitrate in a case like this? And he says, uh, but instead, you know, instead of like handling this conflict in the church, one, what's the next word? One what? One brother. And you know, for you and I here in the 21st century, we get very used to this language. You know, we talk about brothers and sisters in Christ. But remember, this was new language in the first century. That this was a church made up of mostly Gentiles, mostly pagans, coming from different races, different social economic classes, slaves and free and so on, Jews and, and Gentiles. And so, but, but, but what the New Testament teaches is when we come to Jesus, something happens to us. And not only are we, we changed from the inside out, and not only do we enter in this new vertical relationship with God as our Father, that we instantly enter a new well, horizontal relationship for brothers and sisters. And so Paul says, how crazy is this? You're taking your, it'd be like you're taking your, your brother to court and for the Roman, you know, it's like how crazy is you're taking your brother to court? He says, but on top of that, he says, uh, he says, instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So here we're trying to share the message of Jesus, which catches at its core is a message about reconciliation. It's about how we're reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. We're transformed that we, we're going to follow Jesus and live this life of love. That's the message of Jesus. And now we're going to go before unbelievers who mock us and think we're crazy. And we're going to have this major conflict there, kind of which like drags the whole name of Jesus through the mud. And he said, how crazy is that? And he says, the very fact, verse 7, that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Like, you should have been able to resolve this. It shouldn't have gotten to this point. He said, well, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now, of course, this is what Jesus said, right? If someone, 
hits you on the one, on the one cheek, slaps you on the one cheek, turn the other. Uh, if, uh, pray for those who, who, uh, who hurt you. Bless those who curse you. That as Jesus' people, we're to be a people that responds to evil with good, not responds to evil with evil. And so he says, so, hey, why not rather, even if this is going on in the body and you can't resolve it, why not rather just let yourself be wronged or be cheated rather than take the name of Jesus before secular courts and held up to ridicule? He said, but instead, instead of like returning good for evil, you return evil for good. He said, uh, Instead, you yourselves cheat, and you do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And at this point, you can sense Paul getting a bit frustrated. These are people that have come to Jesus, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, powerful work of spiritual gifts, and yet the longer time goes on, the more and more, it's like they're living back like their culture instead of like Christ. You know, last week we looked at this in chapter 5, the first incident, they have this situation with open immorality going on in the church, and, and they're proud, they're, and they're not even dealing with it. Now they're taking each other to court, they're ripping each other off, and then taking, like, this is, it's, they're acting as if they've never come to Jesus. And so Paul is going to give them a major warning here, and he says to them in verse 9, he says, do you not know, there it is, a third time in this passage, do you not know, like what's wrong with you, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like if you think somehow you can kind of like believe in Jesus and just continue to live in your old sinful ways, you're living in deception. Like you've misunderstood the gospel. Can I tell you that I think many in our country today have misunderstood the gospel? We've raised our hand at a meeting. We've gone forward when we're 12 years old. We live like hell and think like, oh, we're saved. We got saved back there. That's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is we come to Jesus. We bow the knee. We turn from our sin. We receive this gracious gift of amnesty that we have no right to. And we follow him. That's the gospel. The gospel is not that we get saved and then live like hell the rest of our life and say it doesn't matter because Jesus died for me, right? And so Paul says, hey, like you've really misunderstood. You're, you're, it, like the, the way you're going at this is it's like you don't understand the gospel. He says, uh, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom? Like when Jesus comes back, you think of what Jesus said. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you didn't do the will of my father. And so he says, do not be deceived. Now, whenever... Paul says, do not be deceived. We always need to sit up, pull our highlighter out, uh, underline, box it. When, when Paul says, don't be deceived, it's because there's a real danger of being deceived. And he says, so don't be deceived. He said, and now he's going to give us a list, catch this, of 10 examples of what he means by wrongdoing. So he just said, hey, do you not know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom so, now said, so let me give you an example of what I mean by wrongdoing. And he's going to give 10 examples. Now, in this list, it looks like this is not just a random list where he's just kind of rattling off examples. But these, these, there's a lot of evidence that suggests these are actually carefully chosen items that reflect some of the sin that's going on in the church at Corinth. All right? 
And so he's going to give us a list of 10. If you're here last week, he gave us another one of these, quote, sin lists at the end of chapter, uh, of chapter 5. He said, you know, don't be deceived. If uh, someone claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, but they're doing it, and he gives six examples, don't associate with them. Well, today he's going to take those six, but he's adding four more. Now, in your, if you use the New International Version of the Bible that we use here, if you count them up, there will only be nine. And the reason for that is they take two terms in the Greek and put them together into one phrase. And so when we get there, and it's an important one, so when we get there, I'll point it out, all right? So he says, do you not know, verse 9, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived about that. And now he's going to give us a list of 10 examples of wrongdoing. First one, neither the sexually immoral. And of course, this is what we dealt with last week. So this is that generic word for any kind of, uh, kind of sexual sin, which uh, would be defined biblically by, like I said last week, by any, any sort of sexual uh, relationship outside of marriage between a man and woman is established in Genesis, male and female, right? So any kind of sin. So it doesn't matter whether it's premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, same-sex relationships, that any sin outside of that would be sexual immorality. That would be a definition like Jesus and the apostles and stuff would use, all right? So the first he starts with kind of a, a large umbrella term, sexual immorality. Second term is idolatry, idolaters. And so what we're going to see is, remember, many of these people in this church came out of a background of pagan idolatry. I don't know if you remember, but there was 27 sacred sites or temples in Corinth to all these, and most many of these people had been worshipers at pagan temples. And what we'll see when we get to chapters eight and ten, this is still an issue. Some are still going back, kind of double dip, going to church and going to temple, right? These temples, and so that's going to become an issue. This is sort of like a shot over the bow, like, hey, I'm coming after you. All right. Um, so the second one is idolatry. Uh, third one is uh, adulterers. Right. So we we know what that is. Uh, next one, this is the phrase that kind of takes two Greek uh, words and puts them together. Men who have sex with men. So as we see throughout the Bible, that same-sex relationships are always described as outside of God's will, outside of his uh, kind of uh, human thriving, or flourishing, right? That they're destructive. So in this passage, Paul actually ref- uses two different Greek terms. And the first one seems to be specifically refer to men who are in a homosexual relationship, but taking the more passive, more feminine role in that relationship. And the second word deals with uh, men who are in a homosexual relationship, but are taking the more active, dominant male role in that relationship. And so he just, the NIV puts it together, men who have uh, sex with men. Right? Um, yeah, men who have sex with men. Now, uh, just a quick a quick uh, sidebar here. Obviously, this is a hot topic in our culture. The Bible is very clear about this, that, that same-sex relationships, uh, when we act those out, it's outside of God's will. Very super clear. Within the, the church, I won't call it the church of Jesus, but within churches in general, this is obviously a hot topic. And 
there are some have risen up kind of because of the pressure of our culture and said, hey, you know what? It's not when the Bible says that same-sex relationships are wrong, it doesn't really mean all same-sex relationships. It means certain kinds of same-sex relationships. So if you understood the culture, if you understand ancient Israel, if you understood Greek culture, Roman culture of the first century, if you understood Hebrew, if you understood Greek, and so there'll be an argument made that, that it's not all same-sex relationships that are, are said to be wrong, but certain kinds. And, and so that, these two words are often brought up as part of that uh, argument. But I think it's not, it's not a strong argument, it's a weak argument, I don't think it holds water. But it, the reason I mention it here is I'm not gonna go into great detail about the Greek and blah, 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 and take forever on that. But if this is something you're interested in learning, and probably this is something that many of you will be confronted with, uh, the people that claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet, hey, we've misunderstood what the Bible's taught all these years, and here's why. And so if you want to learn more about that, we have an excellent book in our bookstore called A People to Be Loved. I put the, no, the, the name of it there on your note sheet by Preston Sprinkles. He's a biblical scholar that he really goes through kind of what the Bible teaches about same-sex relationships, goes through every passage, talks through the Greek words, talks through Jewish culture at the time of Jesus and Paul, what was normative there. And so it's very helpful, uh, very kind of balanced treatment of that. And so if that's something you, you're interested in, I'd really recommend that. Okay. So that's just a quick sidebar. But anyway, so he mentions, he, he uses these two terms there and that they translate as, uh, I think it's a good translation, that men who have sex with men, either in the passive or the dominant role. He said, nor, the next one, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Now, we're not sure, but Paul may be referring to the specific court case that's going on. We believe it's not a criminal case, it's a civil case, very likely involving finances. And so he says, hey, well, instead you're cheating one another, you're ripping one another off. So it, it very, very likely that this may be a nod to that situation, that when because of greed we rip each other off. And so he includes those things in there. And then he goes on, nor slanderers, and in the Greek, that word could be uh, translated different ways. Um, one of the ways that other translations will translate it is a reviler, someone who's like kind of, kind of violently attacking others with their language. And then finally, um, with uh, uh, swindlers, I think I skipped drunkards, we'd call that partiers today, right? Um, and so he says, hey, let me give you a list, right? So at the start of the verse, he, he, let's go back to the beginning of the, uh, verse 9. So don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's his point. And he says, don't be deceived. Now he's going to give us 10 examples of what he means by wrongdoing. And then he ends it up again at the end of verse uh, 10. That they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says that twice, right? And then before he wraps up, though, Paul wants to call out to them because he believes that most of these people he's writing to are true believers. They're just off track. They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten what Jesus has done. And, and so they, they're, they're kind of living like their culture instead of Christ. So he's, he wants to remind them, like, I'm giving you this warning, but that's not who I think you are, at least not most of you. I think you are true believers. You just need to be brought back under the teaching of Jesus and leave the teaching of your culture behind. And so he says in verse 11, and that is what some of you, what's the next word? Isn't that a beautiful word? He says, this is who you were. He says, this is who you were. Before you came to Jesus, before I came to Corinth, before I shared the good news about Jesus and his cross, this is who many of you were. It's exactly who you were. You were living in sexual immorality. You were practicing same-sex relationships. You were committing adultery. 
um, you were uh, slandering one another. You were reviling one another. Your, your life was full of like verbal violence and conflict in your relationship. You, you were partiers. You were, li- you were living for the party. Um, you were uh, ripping each other off. You were living lives with fever. And that's who you were. He said, but then Jesus came. And when you met Jesus, remember, everything changed. You came to Jesus, and, and he says, and what happened when you came to Jesus, he says, you were washed. You were cleansed from your, your past sin, uh, symbolized, I think, by baptism. You were sanctified, which is that word in Greek that to be made holy, separated out, cleansed, kind of changed by the power of God's spirit. He says, and you were, you were justified. That's a legal term, that before we were all guilty before the judgment of God, but because of Christ now, we've been made righteous, not through our performance, but through his, like in, in Romans 5, but we've been justified by faith. We are now standing in this grace of God. And so, so you, you are justified uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, through him and by the Spirit of God. This was all happened by the power of the Spirit. So he's calling them back. He's saying like, hey, remember you came to Jesus. Remember what I taught you. You know better. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to leave this path behind. You need to follow him. Stop, and, and in particular, in this chapter, stop handling your conflicts the way you used to handle them in culture and start handling them in the way of Jesus, in, in the way of his community. All right. And so what I want to do today in the time that we have together is I want to focus in on this kind of big, big picture topic that Paul is introducing and addressing in this section of conflict and how we do conflict, especially in the community of Jesus. But the, the point is, is, hey, before you came to Christ, you did conflict the old way. And, and the court system, that was part of it. But now that you've come to Jesus and you've been washed and you've been sanctified, we, we do conflict a new way. And so what I want to do is, based on this passage, I want to highlight just three very simple but profound steps that we need to take when we find ourselves in conflict situations, uh, especially in the community of Jesus. So maybe it's uh, in your marriage, maybe it's in your family, uh, maybe it's in your life group. Uh, maybe it's in, uh, on a ministry team that you serve on. Uh, maybe it's with friends in the body of Christ, whether they attend here or somewhere else. Uh, maybe it's with leadership in uh, your church or, or conflict between leaders in a church. Like, How do we do conflict uh, and now that we're followers of Jesus and part of his community and come out of culture? And it's such an important topic because I want you to catch this, that nothing destroys the body of Christ faster than unresolved conflict. That it, it, destroy, it destroys a life group. It destroys friendships. It destroys our witness in the world. Remember what Jesus said, by this the world will know that I'm the one who I claim to be by the unity. Right. So it's a super important topic. So with that, let's jump in. There on your note sheet, you have a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, uh, Conflict and Community. I want to highlight three important steps that we need to take when we find ourselves in a situation of conflict. And so the first step is maybe a surprising one, but it's where we need to start. The first step is to expect it. That when it comes to conflict in the community of King Jesus, uh, don't be surprised. 
when it happens. And this is interesting because for some of us, maybe you've grown up in the church or maybe you're, you're a survivor of church wars or church splits. You know, you, you're like, well, what do you mean expected? Of course, it, I, this has been my experience, right? Uh, and, and, and that's sorrowful to say, but that's for, for many of us here. But you know, for many of us, um, I think that, that we're surprised at this. You, know, you come to Jesus and, and we, we join a new community of Jesus and we become a part, say, of a church like Rocky Peak. We maybe have come a, join a life group and it's just a great experience and it's just so different than our experience in the world. And, and that often that we tend to assume that in the body of Christ, we won't have conflict. We understand that out there in the world, of course, there's going to be conflict of every kind. But in this community, I mean, don't we all love Jesus, right? And don't we all love his word? And aren't we all trying to please him? And don't we all live by different values? And aren't we all called to take the high road? And so what happens is that often when conflict happens in the body of Christ, it can really take us by surprise. And it can extremely damage us like, Oh my gosh, like, uh, uh, this is crazy, you know? It's like, I thought this, this, this shouldn't happen in church. Like, this is in church. Like, they call themselves Christians, right? But the reality is, is that there will always be conflict, even in the healthiest of groups, healthiest of churches. And there's a wide variety of reasons for this. Sometimes it's just psychological differences, right? Just the fact that some of us are on-time people and some of us are late people. I mean, think of, look of all the conflict that that causes, just that one simple uh, difference of the way we're uh, wired, right? Um, and so we have personality differences. We have life experience differences. Uh, we come from different backgrounds. Uh, on top of that, uh, we, we're at different levels of spiritual maturity. Like when you bring a church together, you have spiritual babies like here at Corinth with really mature people, right? And you can't expect babies to handle conflict in the same way that mature people will. Uh, sometimes it comes because of theological differences or philosophy of, uh, of ministry uh, difference. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, there's a famous conflict situation between two of the greatest leaders of the early church. And, and this, is, uh, this takes us back to the story that we started the day with. I mean, we started the day with a story about this man who's returned from kind of a long venture to his kind of adopted major cosmopolitan city home. Uh, and he's uh, been back for a while. And he's ready to go out again. But but there's, he's, he's really looking forward to that, but there's kind of a cloud that hangs over his head because this, this close friend and associate that he would normally travel with, are, they're not going to be able to go together this time. There's, there's been a conflict. And this is my version of a very famous conflict in the early church between two of the greatest leaders ever of the movement of Jesus. It's a conflict between the apostle Paul and his close ministry associate named Barnabas. And these are both amazing men men who love Jesus, men who are spiritually mature, men who are led by God's spirit, and yet there's major conflict. And so here's what happened, is that in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit leads Paul and Barnabas to leave their home church at the major city of Antioch and to go out on their first, what we call Paul's missionary journey. It's basically a huge Jesus-sharing expedition where they're gonna go from uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles throughout parts of the Roman Empire sharing Jesus where he's never been shared. And it's a very dangerous trip. In fact, in one of the cities along the way, Paul actually is stoned and they, they think he's dead. But then afterwards he gets up. And so whether well, it's a miracle or not, we don't know, but it was very dangerous. So it was a lot of conflict. So 
They, they go, they're very successful. They share Jesus. Some new churches are started. They come back to Antioch. And so they're back in Antioch. And after a while, Paul says, hey, I think we should go back and visit some of those uh, new believers in the churches to strengthen them and then keep on going and share Jesus further afield. And so, so Barnabas wants to take his cousin, whose name is John Mark. Now, John Mark had gone with them on their first journey uh, as their assistant, but he had bailed on them early in the journey. And we don't know the details, but, but now Barnabas says, I want to give him a second chance. Now, let me ask you something here. How many of you would vote for second chances? Okay. You know, I'm going to see who doesn't. I'm in trouble. Okay, great. Okay, we have the grace and the truth people right there. Um, all right, so we got the, okay, how, okay, so Paul says, hey, wait, time out. I don't want to take this guy, you know, nothing personal, or maybe it's personal, but nothing personal, but he bailed on us. It's, we're going into harm's way. Like, this is very dangerous. We need to choose someone that we can rely on, not someone who let us down in the, and so how many of you would agree that when you go out on a dangerous mission, you should be very careful about who you choose? Okay. Some of you are like, ah, oh, no, I'm not very wise. All right. Um, okay. So the, so the question is like, well, which way do you go? You can see the debate, right? And we're told that they really, you know, I'm sure they prayed. I'm sure they discussed. They're very close friends. I'm sure they debated this. But in the end, I want you to catch this. They can't get on the same page about this important philosophy of ministry issue. In fact, there on your note sheet, in Acts 14, this is how Luke, the author of Acts, describes it. He says, they had such a what? Sharp disagreement that they, that they parted ways. They couldn't figure it out, and they had to go different directions and get new people to join them on the trip. It's a very strong word in the Greek. It's a word that, that deals with like irritation, being provoked. It's a sharp disagreement. And you look at this, you say, how crazy. These are two, hey, these two people led by the Spirit, kind of the paradigm of uh, spiritual leaders, courage, humility, um, wisdom at the top of their games. And you have this very important kind of ministry decision. They can't get on the same page. And all I'm saying is that in the community of Jesus, that there are going to be times when we experience conflict. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's because of, like here in Corinth, flat-out sin. One, one person's ripping off another one. Sometimes it's because of immaturity, like we saw earlier in this letter. I'm of Paul, I'm of uh, Peter, and so on. Sometimes it's just because of other, other uh, situations, but, but, but conflict is a reality. And if you're in a church, if you're in a life group, if you're in a ministry team, sooner or later, you're going to have conflict. That this should not surprise us. In fact, I want you to catch this. The New Testament assumes that we're going to have conflict in the body of Christ. And the way you can tell this is because there's so many times in the New Testament where the apostles will tell us, be patient with one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Like, let me give you an example. This one's not on your note sheet, so you all need to use your own Bibles. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Don't wait for it to come up on the screen. Colossians 3, and, and I'm just going to give you one example kind of illustrating this, but once I point it out, you'll see it throughout the New Testament over and over again. In verse 12, 
Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, you know, like God's holy people, like the church of Corinth, right? Holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility. It's a big one in conflict situations. In gentleness, and then what's the last one? Patience, okay? Yeah, so notice that. Clothe yourself with patience. Then he says, why do you need patience? Well, it goes on. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a what? A grievance. So he's writing to the church and he says, listen, I want, I want to tell you how to do community in this new community of Jesus. And here's how you're going to have to, you got to put on compassion. You got to put on kindness. You got to hold on to humility. You got to be gentle. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to bear with one another sometimes. And, and when grievances happen, you're going to need to forgive. This is how we do community. But do you notice how he assumes that grievances will happen? Let me ask you something, a rhetorical question. When do you need to be patient with someone? When do you need to bear with someone? When do you need to forgive someone? The answer, you need to be patient when people are irritating. <laughs> you need to bear with someone when they let you down, when they frustrate you, when they don't act like a Christian? When do you need to forgive someone when there's a legitimate grievance? Do you see how the New Testament assumes that in the body of Christ, and so this is very important because if, if this isn't part of our paradigm, here's what happens. We join a life group and there's some conflict in it or you join a ministry team, and there's some conflict in it, and we're very quick to say, I can't believe they call themselves Christians. I can't believe this shouldn't be the way the church is. What, 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 whatever. And we begin to overreact and react like we would back in our culture. And so we need to understand that in the community of Jesus, there will be conflict. And the first step to dealing with it in a healthy way is to don't be surprised. That when it happens, this is normal. Don't you freak out here. Okay, so the question is, when it happens, how do we respond to it like Jesus, not like our culture? And that leads us to number two. So the second principle that Paul gives us in this passage, and Jesus talks about this often, as we'll see, is we need to move towards it. That when there is conflict in our lives, and especially in the community of Jesus, these principles apply across the board, but especially in the community that we need to move towards it, to seek resolution. Now, can I tell you that, that most of the time in culture at large, whether it's culture of Corinth or culture today, that most of the times this is not the normal response out in culture. That when, when there is conflict, the normal response in culture is usually one of two things, at least they're the two most common responses. The first response is to go on the attack to return evil for evil. And, and that might be physical attack, it might be financial attack, it might be verbal attack, it might be directly with the person, or it might be indirectly going around them, gossiping around them, tearing them down. But this, this is kind of the natural response. The first response is to go on the attack. 
The second response that's very natural for many people is to withdraw. So if you hurt me, what I do is just cut you off. And I don't have a relationship. So I have conflict in this life group. And instead of moving towards resolving it, I just say, we'll just get in a new life group. We'll just write it off. That this person's dead to me. I'm just kind of done, right? And so that's how culture tends to deal with conflict. That's kind of the way of the world. And as opposed to that, Paul says, no, as followers of Jesus, catch this, we belong to the community, catch this, of reconciliation. If you had to have like one word to describe the community of Jesus, reconciliation wouldn't be a bad word. Because when we come to Jesus, the first we're reconciled vertically to God, but we're reconciled horizontally to one another to live out this new life and this life of community, uh, this community of love and peace, right? Harmony. By Jesus said, by this all men shall know that you're my disciples, by this love you have for one another. This is how they'll know the Father sent me, by the unity that you have. So the community of Jesus is to be a model of reconciliation. So Paul says that this is how you used to handle it. Before you came to Christ, someone ripped you off, you take them to court, and catch this, in Roman court system, that it was real big on character assassination. Unlike today, I mean, sometimes that happens, <laughs> yeah, Sometimes that happens today uh, in certain ways, but in Roman courts, it played a huge role. The idea was not just to win the case, but was to destroy the reputation of your enemy. That's what was considered a win. Remember we talked about being an honor and shame culture? The, the goal was to bring shame, to shame them publicly. And so Paul says, this is how you used to do conflict, as you could, someone, this would happen, you would take it to court, you just kind of go on the attack, but he says, now you're followers of Jesus, we need to move towards this. And so look what he says, and there in your note sheet, in Romans 5, he says, is it possible that there's nobody among you in your church wise enough to judge a dispute? Like, you shouldn't be doing this the old, day, old way, you should be handling this within the new community. Now, it's interesting because when you read that verse, it reminds me of something Jesus said that we looked at last week. And you may remember, so I put it in your note sheet again uh, from Matthew 18, a famous passage, where, remember, Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, and we talked about last week just, you know, sins like holding accountable. It's not necessarily sin against you, but let's apply this to sin against you. In fact, there are some passages that actually say that, if your brother sins against you, some translations. He says, if your brother or sister sins... He says, go and point out their fault. Do you notice how he says, move towards it? Do you catch that? If someone's, you know, someone's saying, move towards it, um, and he says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, my hunch is this had happened in Corinth. There's probably this one member had gone to the other. What are you doing ripping me off? But obviously, it didn't work. He says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. You know, we've resolved the conflict. But if they will not listen, then then take one or two others. And remember, this was based on the Old Testament principle. In legal cases, you had to have like two or three witnesses. And that's what Jesus says. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quote, uh, from Deuteronomy, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three. So continue to move towards it, but take others with you to try to get this result. He said, but if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. So that would be like here in Corinthians, right? Is there, is there no one wise enough that you can kind of take this to arbitration? But the point is, we're not going on the attack. 
We're not returning evil for evil. We're seeking resolution. Uh, this is something that Jesus taught other places. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 5. Again, this is a late edition, not on your note sheet. But in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see this. Uh, the scene is that, remember in Israel, if you wanted to offer a sacrifice to God, there's only one place to offer sacrifice. That's at the temple in Jerusalem. You can't offer sacrifice at a synagogue. So, so people would travel hundreds of miles, you know, and come for really from around the world to offer sacrifice at Jerusalem. So that's the scene. And in verse, 20, uh, verse 23, Jesus says, therefore, if you're, uh, the, the context, by the way, he's talking about conflict in relationships. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you're there in Jerusalem, you're, you're offering this act of sacrifice to God. He said, but you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. All right, so there's something wrong in your relationship. Look what he says. Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. He says, and then come and offer your gifts. See what I'm saying? That this, what Jesus is teaching is, hey, relationships are really important. And they're so important. It's like, don't bring your worship to God before you're trying to seek reconciliation with your brother or sister. Now, you say, well, are there ever exceptions to this? Yeah, I, I think there are. That there are situations where moving towards it actually makes it wor- would make it worse than better. Uh, it might be a sociopath or something like that. You know, who knows? But, um, but I think in general, what we see in Scripture is that, hey, this is the way we used to handle it. We go on the attack or we withdraw. But in the community of Jesus, we don't do that. We don't return evil for evil. We move towards it seeking reconciliation. So that's step number two. The third step is to let it go. Now, this is almost a technical term. Um, you may, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, the, the word for forgiveness in Greek um, is a Greek word called aphiomi. We won't spend time with that. But you know what it means? It means to let it go. It means to release, right? Uh, so to forgive means to give up the right to hurt someone back. It's a helpful definition. To forgive someone is I give up the right to hurt them back. They've hurt me. I'm going to release them from that debt. I turn it over to the Lord. He can collect it on his time. He's the judge of all the earth. But but I I clear the books. I, I let it go. And so, of course, this is something that Jesus taught. And this goes to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? What it means to be a Christian. We're the people that Jesus has let it go. He's let our sin go. And so, so we're called to follow like him. And this is what Paul says uh, in this passage. He really gives us a couple different options towards resolving conflict in the body. One is to move towards it and seek resolution. We just talked about that. But the second one is to let it go, to forgive, to wipe the debt clean. And so uh, there in your note sheet, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, he said, why not rather be wronged why not rather be cheated? So Paul says, hey, if there's this conflict, hey, move towards it and resolve it. He said, or why don't you just let it go? Like Jesus let it go for us, like he taught us, right? And so Jesus often said that, hey, bless those who curse you. Um, uh, go the second mile. Uh, like he said, and in doing this, you'll be like your father in heaven, you know, who's let our sin go. 
And so this, this option is, Paul often refers to this in his writings. And so, for example, there in your note sheet, 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, he says, hey, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Okay, so in culture, this is how it works. So when wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them back. Okay? He says, but in the community of Jesus, we follow Jesus' example. We don't return wrong for wrong. He said, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other. We take the high road, we seek the other's best, and for everyone else. Or Romans 12, the next passage, do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's the old way. That's culture's way. He said, if it's as possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So it's not always possible. Some people are incredibly unreasonable. All you can do is do what you can do to make peace. But he says, so he's a realist. But, but notice what he says, do not take what? See, that's the way outside culture. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. In fact, I may try to hurt you worse so you never hurt me again. And he says, so do not take revenge. He says, do not be overcome by evil. Well, what does that mean? Well, when someone does evil to you if, you, if it causes you to do evil back, you've been overcome. You, you have now chosen the wrong thing based on their wrong thing. And he says, so do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, All right? So, so Paul says, hey, in the, in the body of Christ, there's, gonna come, there's going to come uh, conflict. It's, gonna, it's a reality, you should expect it. And when it happens, we don't respond like we used to respond. We move towards it seeking resolution, or we choose, hey, to let it go. We're gonna forgive that. We're gonna wipe the books clean and trust Jesus to deal with it his time, but we're gonna let it go, right? So those are the options. Now, this leads to one important question then for us. And this is a question I'd love for you to reflect on, not only today, but also this, this week, because here's something I've noticed in the body of Christ, that one of the last things to change when we come to Jesus is the way we do relationships. That so many things tend to change. We come to Jesus, may we stop our sexual immorality, may we stop our greed, or we stop ripping people off, maybe our language changes, we start going to Jesus. There's a lot of things that change. But what I've noticed is that in the body of Christ, one of the last things to change is the way we do relationships. We often tend to do relationships in the same old way. We tend to parent in the way we were parented. We tend to do marriage the way we've seen marriage modeled. And often it's like we, we don't take the teaching of Jesus and apply it to our relationships. And that's especially true in the area of conflict. That many times, even after we come to Jesus, we just do conflict in the same old way. So I want you to really reflect on this question I'm about to ask. I encourage you, as Dre often does, to, to take it before the Lord. It doesn't mean the next 24 hours. I'll give you longer than that. You can have the whole week for this. It's a big project. Um, he's a much de more demanding taskmaster, I would just say. But uh, Whether it's the next 24 hours or this week, but to take some time and really think about this. And here's my question. There in your note sheet, the section, Christ, conflict, and the cross, responding to conflict. The question is, how do you respond to conflict? I want you to think about this. How do you respond to conflict? In your marriage, um, in your, uh, maybe <clears throat> in your, uh, your, your families. Um, maybe it's uh, like if there's conflict in your life group. Maybe if there's conflict on a ministry team you serve on. Maybe there's conflict that you have with leadership here at Rocky Peak. Maybe 
It's uh, conflict with Christian friends, whether they're a part of our community here or not. But, but the question is, how do you respond to conflict? And do you tend to respond to conflict kind of the way of the world, the way of culture, which is to go on the attack either directly or indirectly? Like one of the worst ways to do conflict is the indirect method where we resort to gossip or we go around the, just tearing down a person's reputation wherever we go or using it as a prayer request, you know, or whatever the thing may be. So there's many different ways to go on the attack. You can be aggressive or you can be passive aggressive. But they're both ways of going like, so do you, do you tend to go on the attack or do you tend to withdraw when there's conflict, just I'm out of here and write a person off? Or are you being taught by the Holy Spirit to do conflict in a whole new way, to, to pursue peace, to pursue reconciliation, to move towards this? And can I tell you something? As we learn this, it's messy. We often don't do it the perfect right way. We have to give each other grace. We're not used to dealing conflict in a really positive way. But do you, do you, are you learning how to do conflict in a new way? Are you learning how to forgive if, if uh, direct reconciliation doesn't seem to be the option that's really available? Like, like, are we learning the way of Jesus? And I think it's one of the most important issues when we talk about Christ versus, versus culture, right, or following the way of Christ, and we often think of some of these hot-button issues that are so important in our day, right, human sexuality or different things like that, right? But, but this issue of how we deal conflict is one of the most important issues that we face as followers of Jesus. Because as we're going to be singing in just a few minutes, that there are very few things will, build, will tear down the body of Christ faster than unresolved conflict. And very few things build the body of Christ more than learning to do conflict in a healthy way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's pray together. So Father, as we reflect on this, we think about our lives, we just thank you for your gentleness, for your grace, for your humility with us. You're so patient, Lord. You know that we come out of a fallen world. We've had horrible models, and we're not very good at this, and yet you just, you just really honor the small steps we take in the right direction to learn how to follow you and do relationships in a new way. And so, Lord, as we sing this, this beautiful song, calling on you to build your church, we pray that you'd be speaking to us about what does it look like in our life to build your church in new ways by approaching conflict in the Jesus way, not the way of culture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.